welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Thanks very much for joining me today, Mark. Always a pleasure, Steve. All right. Well, uh, Mark, uh, as you as you probably know, uh, most listeners is a uh, frequent guest, uh, and it's great to uh, have him on the show again. Uh, Mark, some pretty big developments uh, in Russia's war against Ukraine in the past few days, uh, both on and off the battlefield. Uh, most obviously, I guess, is Russia's claim on Saturday, I believe it was, to have taken full control over Bakhmut the now ruined city in the Donbass that has been the focus of heavy fighting for many months, almost a year, in fact, I believe. Um, I guess there was something of a lull later last year, but then it picked up again uh, in, I believe, December. Uh, Since then, quite heavy fighting. Um, Yevgeny Prigozhin, whose forces from the mercenary group Wagner have been heavily involved uh, in the fighting in Bakhmut was the first to make the claim that uh, it was taken by, by Russia. Um, and that was then repeated by the defense ministry and by President Vladimir Putin, who congratulated uh, Wagner. He did so um, before saying that the Russian military also, uh, right, you know, the regular military also uh, contributed to what Russia says is the full um, full takeover of, of Bakhmut. Now, Ukraine denied and has continues to, to deny the Russian claim, at least the latest I heard. Um, President Volodymyr Zelensky, who met with U.S. President Joe Biden and other G7 leaders holding a summit in Japan over the weekend, said on Sunday that Bakhmut was not occupied by Russian forces. He did mention that the city is almost completely destroyed. Uh, Mark, I want to ask, um, how important it, would it be? Uh, there's been, I mean, there's been back and forth. Uh, there have been previous claims, I believe, by Prigozhin uh, about taking Bakhmut. But how important would it be if Russia did indeed take full control of Bakhmut? And, and I guess I mean how important in terms of the fighting in the Donbass and in Ukraine, uh, you know, where Russian forces control only part of the Donetsk region, uh, but also how important, given other developments uh, in, in the war, kind of on the battlefield and also off, um, the G7 uh, at, at the weekend summit vowed to support Ukraine as long as it takes. Uh, Biden announced a new $375 million package of military aid, and Western uh, allies signaled a willingness to supply Kiev with F-16 fighter jets, which, which was something new. Um, in this context, uh, how important is, is Bakhmut? Yeah, I mean, look, the thing is, we're talking really about maybe a few blocks that are sort of still in questionable control. Do the Russians control it all now or not? Well, who knows? I think, uh, you know, it's very hard for outsiders to know. 
But the question about whether it matters, I mean, I think this is the interesting thing, because it very much speaks to the whole question about the importance of territory in this war in particular. On one level, I mean, although we obsess about these daily maps showing, you know, each individual little inching back and forth of the front line and who's managed to take a salient here, who's managed to invest a village there. That's not actually how wars are won. Wars are won by degrading the opponent's uh, forces such that they're no longer able to fight and bringing the enemy's political leadership, frankly, to a point that they cannot or will not continue to sustain the effort. Wars are ultimately always political acts. And in that context, taking Bakhmut militarily doesn't really matter. Sure, in theory, one can then look at the map and say, aha, it's a staging post onto this place or that. But Russia clearly has no capability, at least for the moment, to push anywhere further. And frankly, Russia is moving into a defensive position, ready to weather the anticipated storm of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. So militarily, no big deal, except that obviously um, it would mean, you know, presumably some slackening off of the actual fighting there. Politically, of course, a different matter. The very fact of the Russians' continued inability to take Bakhmut has been an embarrassment for Russia, but also has exacerbated these political tensions between Prigozhin and the military leadership, especially because it seems that Prigozhin overpromised Putin, and in part his violently vituperative attacks on Shoigu, Gerasimov et al. were really about establishing an alibi. It's not my fault, boss. It's because I wasn't given the ammo, I wasn't given the support or whatever. Um, but more to the point, the, the continued failure clearly has led the Russians to have to continue to feed forces into Bakhmut, forces which arguably could have been much more effectively used elsewhere simply because Putin was not willing to accept anything less than an eventual victory. And likewise, the, the, the fall of Bakhmut will indeed be hailed as some kind of grand triumph by a, a Kremlin desperate for any kind of triumph. And, you know, that, that may or may not have some kind of wider political impact. But I think this is the point. Territory in and of itself is not really the big deal. It's how that becomes considered in political terms, what sort of narratives evolve around it and how that's kind of weaponized. And this is one of the interesting things, if I can kind of drag this on. I mean, we, we have these current reports about a cross-border incursion by the so-called Freedom for Russia Legion of Russians fighting on, on the side of the Ukrainians into Belgorod region. Now, it's highly unlikely that this is going to be a major or lasting incursion. Again, it's not about the territory. It's about the political narratives that can be created around the fact that there are Ukrainian-backed Russian forces, anti-Kremlin forces, crossing the border. So it's all about the politics, ultimately. All right, thanks very much for that. Uh, and and uh, good, good to add the... Um... Uh, information about about this apparent incursion today. Um, I just I guess I'll ask a follow up question on the uh, sort of both the political and the and the I guess battlefield aspect. Um, 
you know, I think you mentioned essentially for Putin, it became essential to take Bakhmut. Um, and, but you also mentioned that the Russian side is digging in uh, for the expected Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, and Russia has little or no capacity to, at least for now, uh, take more territory or much more territory. Um, does that potentially mean, um, I mean, obviously it may depend on, on how capabilities uh, develop, but does that potentially mean that Putin will essentially settle for the amount, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about in, in his mind and, and his, him formally, I'm not talking about what Ukraine will uh, settle for, but is it possible that Putin would kind of, I mean, he's always indicated at least uh, they would sort of settle for nothing less than the entire Donbass, the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. But does the sort of importance that they've placed on Bakhmut mean, you know, it's possible he could sort of give up on the rest of the Donetsk region? I mean, really, that's speaking to the question of, you know, whether or not this, this conflict can freeze. And I mean, I think I think that's a difficult one to answer for several reasons. First of all, um, capability now does not necessarily mean capability in a month or a year's time. And frankly, we ought to be honest about this. You know, we're we're talking about a war that it's not going to end this year, in my opinion. Um, it may well drag on for years in some form or another. So, you know, again, this, this, this is the difficulty in trying to kind of project outward towards end, end states. Bakhmut, I mean, it's, it's, it's a face-saving sop. So, you know, wonderful Russia now has, you know, have many square kilometres now of additional rubble that will have to, it will have to in due course rebuild and repopulate if it manages to hold on to it. You know, it, it is possible that somewhere down the line, Putin will actually sort of feel that his interests are best suited by trying to freeze the conflict. The point is, though, it takes two to freeze a conflict. Either the Ukrainians must be willing to accept it, even just as a temporary expedient, or they must, you know, they ha would have to be, again, their forces degraded to the point where there's nothing they can do about it. And that's, that's not very likely. I mean, and this, if I can just sort of sideline just for a moment into the whole business of the F-16s, look, the G7 statement, the support for as long as it takes, you know, we should realise the extent to which some of these are just simply fairly empty political statements. It's the same way as the claim that, you know, basically the war will end when Ukraine believes it ends, as if the West has no interests, no agency. I mean, of course, who can tell quite, you know, what, what, what the future will lie? Indeed, what different political leaderships there may well be as, as the sort of months turn to years. But in terms of providing the F-16s, on one level, we shouldn't overplay them. They are absolutely not some kind of magic war-winning weapon. Um, you know, training the pilots is the easy bit. It's actually having the people to maintain the planes, but also the spare parts. I mean, by all accounts, the F-16s in question are rather dated ones whose spare parts may well be in, in short supply and need to be sort of more or less hand, handmade. And you know, these kind of planes, they are basically platforms for missiles and radar. Their radars are OK. You know, they, they were good in their day, but their day is no longer now. And it's also a question of which kind of missiles are going to be provided and, and, and used. 
The thing about it, though, is precisely by being willing to escalate the types of kit being provided to the Ukrainians, what this is signaling in conjunction with arguably the much more important measures to ramp up production of ammunition and other kit is precisely a, a sense of a willingness from the West to commit to a long-term strategy to, to basically continue this war for more than just a, a few months or whatever, but if need be, in, in, into the years. So that kind of go, goes back to you know, whether or not Putin could actually accept that. Well, in a way, yes, the war could freeze at some point. Frozen conflicts can be the preamble to negotiation, they can also just simply be a lull between actual hot phases of the war. They can also be localized. You can have parts of the front line um, stabilizing and being subject to potentially sort of locally brokered truces while the war is, is still raging in other parts of the front line. There's a whole variety of different ways in this can emerge. But the bottom line is this. At present, neither Putin nor the Ukrainian leadership are demonstrating any belief that they need to dramatically um, reduce their expectations. I think Putin still is showing every sign to, in, of, of believing, and again, you know, who knows quite what's going on in Putin's head, but he's, he certainly is showing signs that he believes that this war can be extended as long as necessary until finally Ukraine's will or capacity to fight breaks, or more to the point, Western unity to support it breaks. And likewise, the Ukrainians, clearly, they are, have high hopes for their, for their offensive. Politically speaking, although there are those off the record willing to talk about the fact that there may someday need to be some kind of a negotiation, perhaps over Crimea, but you know, formally and indeed legally, the aim is the return of every single square centimetre of occupied territory. In that context, there is really no room for anything other than a kind of exhausted stalemate to emerge at some point. But we're, we're, we're nowhere near that yet. Final point, just to throw in at this point, is we also got to realise that no one really has an idea of how this war can end. Because even if the Russians are pushed out of every bit of occupied territory, that does not end the war. That just simply means that the front line becomes Ukraine's 1991 borders. But Russia can continue to pound Ukrainian cities with by air or artillery, send forces across the border when it feels it can, use all kinds of, sort of covert and, and subversive measures you know, or whatever. So basically speaking, I think you know, we, we have to acknowledge the extent to which there is no real pathway that is visible now to how this war freezes, let alone ends. All right, well, thanks very much. That, I mean, I think my question was probably not very good, but the answer was very good. Um, and to be honest, I hadn't really thought of what you, that kind of outcome, or, or not outcome, but, but temporary outcome that, that you just mentioned, the idea of you know, Ukraine pushes uh, Russian forces out of Ukraine entirely, um, you know, beyond the 1991 borders, uh, country's borders, and and yet the war does not does not end. So, you know, I hadn't really thought of that as 
as a possibility, but of course, of course, it is. Um, I mean, there, there is a perverse fact that ultimately it's the loser who gets to decide when a war ends. Um, you know, even if it's just simply that, well, we will not continue to sort of run guerrilla warfare after our country has been invaded. I mean, in this context, let's say the, the Russians had somehow managed to achieve their initial goal of taking over all of Ukraine. The thing is, actually, then Ukraine sort of had a choice whether to submit or whether to turn this into an insurgency campaign. And obviously, I think the answer is it would have been the latter. Well, likewise, given that I don't think we're going to see Ukrainian tanks rolling into Moscow, you know, actually, if, if Russia is on the back foot, it still means that it will retain the initiative of how long it's willing to fight, how long it's willing to take the costs of doing so. Right. Thank you. And I guess uh, obviously a big factor in that would be what happens uh, internally uh, in Russia at, at that at that point. Okay. Um, well, the the other question I wanted to ask is is a little narrower. At least at the start, it's narrower, um, but it's related. It's about um, Yevgeny Prigozhin and his kind of his status, and I guess his future. Kind of kind of a roller coaster for him in the past couple weeks, I would say. Um, in one of his recent diatribes against Russia's military leaders, whom he's repeatedly accused of incompetence and even treason, uh, claiming they have deliberately kept his forces short of the ammunition they needed in Bakhmut. Um, in a recent comment, he, he used coarse wording that, that many interpreted as referring to Putin, um, although he's never openly criticized Putin. Uh, and then there was the Washington Post report uh, saying that leaked U.S. intelligence documents indicate that Prigozhin offered to give Ukraine information about Russian troop positions uh, of the regular army, of course, not uh, if uh, Kiev withdrew its forces from Bakhmut, from the Bakhmut area. Uh, and so that that report has also uh, you know, raised questions uh, about his loyalties and, and the way he operates. Uh, but now uh, Prigozhin has claimed uh, that his forces have essentially taken Bakhmut and Putin has publicly praised uh, Wagner for it. Um, I haven't seen any, any, I mean, I may have missed something, but I haven't seen any public evidence of, you know, kind of criticism of uh, Prigozhin from Putin, at least since, the, uh, since this claim to have taken uh, Bakhmut in its entirety. Mark, where could things go from here? Will Prigozhin grow more powerful after this, uh, or will he perhaps kind of fade into the background after claiming mission mission accomplished in Bakhmut? Uh, I think he said his forces will leave there by June first, which is actually not, you know, that's still more than a week away. But more broadly, um, does Putin need Prigozhin, and uh, could Prigozhin become a threat to Putin? I mean, the honest answer is I don't think Prigozhin could become a threat. Look, Prigozhin is both a symbol and a symptom of the Putin system. The system that essentially creates these opportunistic political entrepreneurs, sets them against each other, encourages them to fight bitter struggles by teeth, tooth and claw for resources and political favour between them and relies on Putin's capacity to manage the conflict and ensure that 
there's enough divide and rule that keeps them hungry and biddable, but not so much that it actually undermines the working of the system. Now, that may have, one can argue, whether it actually worked well politically. I mean, obviously it helped keep Putin in power for 23 years. But on the other hand, I mean, it is clear that once transplanted to the battlefield, that system has been pretty disastrous. And for, for Prigozhin, absolutely, he became really sort of his his fate became synonymous with the outcome of, of the battle for Bakhmut, which is why he's always so so keen to be able to to claim victory. Um, we'll have to wait and see whether or not this particular claim turns out to be more more plausible than the other. But he's definitely look, I mean, the moment in a particularly vulnerable position. He was anyway before this recent spout of leaks in that Essentially, he'd pushed too far. He'd made too many enemies, too many dangerous enemies, not just uh, Shoigu, defense minister, but also the FSB. Then we have these leaks, which if they had just been in isolation, I would have wondered if they were a piece of black propaganda precisely to undermine Prigozhin by suggesting that he was making deals with the Ukrainians and particularly with Ukrainian military intelligence, Khur that he was encouraging them to attack Crimea, telling them that uh, Russian ammunition stocks are very low and that he was trying to make some kind of deal whereby if they allowed him to take Bakhmut, he would provide them with all kinds of other information about other troop locations, dispositions and intentions. Now, I mean, in, in that context, that sounds very much like treason. The thing is that it came as part of a collection of leaks which may well include some dubious documents, but basically speaking, most of the, the key elements within those leaks have been directly or indirectly uh, substantiated. I mean, actually, this, this does look like a genuine case of, 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 of security and intelligence documents being leaked rather than some kind of, of complex operation to shape the information space. In that context, it poses an interesting challenge to Putin especially after, as you say, Prigozhin broke the taboo. Taboo is about any kind of direct criticisms of Putin himself. I mean, this is one reason why, why Shoigu and Gerasimov have taken so much flack and have essentially allowed it to happen, because their role is basically to be Putin's bulletproof vest, to take all the incoming rounds that otherwise people might be lobbing towards the commander-in-chief, whose responsibility actually so many of the blunders of this war are. So, I mean, in that context, when he made his sort of famous comment about grandfather, well, look, I mean, although he then later sort of tried to suggest that it might be Shoigu or Gerasimov or another general, there is only one Ged in Russian sort of political discourse, and that's Putin. So it was a pretty obvious challenge to Putin. And so, well, OK, we have to see how, how did grandfather respond? And my answer would be, to, to use a bit of English vernacular, that he bottled it, that actually he did not demonstrate the, 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 the guts to actually go after Prigozhin and, and punish him for that. And I think it's an interest, there's an interesting parallel here with Ramzan Kadyrov of Chechnya. Putin, like many, it has to be said, within the elite, have more or less convinced themselves that without Kadyrov, Chechnya explodes into chaos and there's another Chechen war on the way. And that's something that they're terrified to avoid. <laughs> they were even before they more or less lost their, most of their army. 
Now, I think that's deeply questionable. But what it has meant, because Putin hasn't asked me my views on the subject, is that Kadyrov has massive freedom of manoeuvre. And essentially, any time it looks as if the money is going to start being reduced, that is sent from the centre to Chechnya, Kadyrov basically makes himself inconvenient. Perhaps he muses about the possibility of stepping down or he picks a fight with some other element within the system or whatever. But generally, he makes it clear that he's not willing to accept this. And time and time again, the Kremlin backs down and he gets his money. Chechnya is basically an autonomous little satrapy within the Russian Federation that Moscow pays for. Now, Prigozhin, not without being quite as, as powerful and as willful as, as, as Kadyrov, nonetheless, you know, seems to be in a similar position, that somehow people think that no Prigozhin means no Wagner. Whereas in practice, I think there's no reason why, why Wagner could not continue with someone else stepping into the role, or Wagner's fighters could be transferred to one of the other mercenary organizations, like the ones run by the Ministry of Defense, Patriot, Shit, Redut, and so forth. But still, Putin ultimately, you know, this is a man who, for all his macho persona, does not like taking tough decisions, tries to avoid them, put them off as long as possible. But he seems to have decided that, that Prigozhin can get away with it. I think Prigozhin's claims of victory are precisely about trying to uh, consolidate that, that position. So, you know, we'll have to see. But in, in terms of the future, I mean, it may well be that actually Prigozhin will have to relinquish Wagner or just simply that Wagner gets, this is awful word that does around these, way, these days, attrited, i.e. subject to attrition to the point where it, it's scarcely you know, operating anymore. In which case, it may well be that, that, that uh, Prigozhin will just find himself in a new role, because after all, you know, this is Putin's chef. This is the man who ran the troll farms in, against the 2016 presidential elections in the States. This is the man who basically does whatever the Kremlin wants. There's some suggestions that he might have a place in the political firmament. There was the claim that he wanted to take over the Just Russia for Truth party, which in what is fairly sort of common pattern um, in Russian political parties is more or less diametrically opposite to its title in that it's not really about a just Russia and it's certainly not about truth. But nonetheless, uh, Sergei Mironov, its head, you know, is, I think, uh, demonstrating rather lacklustre performance. Uh, Zakhar Prilepin, who was one of its uh, co-chairs, as I recall, well, he's just had, uh, you know, himself hospitalised by what seems to have been a, a Ukrainian military intelligence operation against him. And in that context, it may well be that Prigozhin still has another incarnation. After all, the Russian political system needs people who we could characterize as, I don't know, scarecrows and lightning rods. In other words, people who look really bizarrely extremist to make Putin look fairly rational and moderate. You know, essentially the role that Zhirinovsky used to have. But also as lightning rods, people who precisely can attract and in the process control the more extreme, angry nationalists. And I think that may well also be Prigozhin's role in the future. So a long rambling answer to your question. He's not a threat. He needs to continue to be, try and be useful for the Kremlin. And that might be sort of continuing Wagner's operations on the battlefield or it might be in politics. 
But the fact that he's still around, I think, says something about Putin's essential weakness. The fact that uh, Putin is willing to be phenomenally ruthless in Ukraine, but when it comes to the higher elite, he's actually much more nervous than I think he probably needs to be. And I think this will convey to the elite themselves that Putin is perhaps no longer the man he used to be. All right. Thank, uh, I wouldn't say that was a rambling answer. Um, and, I, and I have to say, I'm, I'm kind of convinced now. My view is that if uh, Russian's political system remains similar to what it is now, um, you know, I could I could very easily see, you know, I didn't really think of it, um, but you could very easily see Prigozhin as, you know, the leader or a key figure in a, in a party um, like just Russia. If, if, and, and that would also fit in, as this is just pure speculation, but it would also kind of fit in with the overall shift in Russia, you know, towards this kind of, um, I don't know what to call it, obscurantist and, and uh, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, religion of war, or the the way that the the political system is changing as as um, as the crackdown continues. So I mean, funny as I add like to that, I mean, particularly because Zhirinovsky's old party, the Liberal Democrats, um, they're really not doing particularly well at, at, at coping in a post Zhirinovsky era. Uh, Slutsky, he manages to be every bit as unpleasant as Zhirinovsky, but much less charismatic. And in some ways also, um, the kind of ultranationalism that, that LDPR espoused was, for all its, its bellicose talk, essentially a, a civil, a civilian nationalism. And again, I think it, it, it's very difficult to try and convert that into something that, that can attract the kind of turbo patriot sort of wing. So I think this is, it. in some ways, what could happen is a, a, a Prigozhin party, whether it's based on just Russia or not, um, you know, in some ways would, would, would become the, the natural successor. LDPR, after all, I mean, a lot of its support was based not just on the needs of the electoral arithmetic of those people rigging the elections, but also massive amounts of central government money poured into its advertising. I mean, you know, the, the, the disproportion between the amount of money that uh, LDPR received for that purpose and anyone else was really quite astonishing. And it may well be that, that the centre thinks, well, frankly, rather than continuing to try and create this, you know, maintain this astroturf political party that pretends to be grassroots, but is in fact entirely artificial, well, maybe actually, you know, Prigozhin, for all his thuggishness, you know, does nonetheless represent a certain kind of, of new man, and that could create a new party that fulfills the same role as the LDPR. All right, well, that, that's fascinating. Uh, and, um, and, and I guess, you know, whether, you know, you mentioned Prigozhin's future role could be in, in, on the battlefield or it could be in politics, and I guess that will depend in part on what happens on the battlefield. Um, we're getting short on time, but I'd like to uh, take questions uh, if there are any. So um, time to ask a question if you haven't sent one in. 
I'm not seeing any right now. We'll give it a few more moments. And okay. Um, sometimes we have no questions. We're happy to take them, but uh, if none, we can. Uh, we do have a question, actually. Oh, uh, good. Sorry, one second. It's um, from Stephen Jones. Uh, what is Mark's understanding of how Russian oligarchs now view this war after 15 months? And do they remain of any relevance when it comes to changing Putin's mindset, or are they impotent? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, look, I, I think that most of the oligarchs regard this as, as distinctly bad for business. Not catastrophic for them personally, um, but on the other hand, I think they, you know they're, they're fully aware of the fact that even if on paper some of them are making more money than before, the question is, well, A, what can you spend that money on? I, mean, I don't just simply mean whether you can get hold of a Mercedes or whatever, but actually the sort of quality of life generally. And B, how secure is that money? given that the, the, the state can, can always come after you and you no longer can move your money out, which is always the sort of the goal of, of many of these oligarchs. But yes, the question is how, how relevant they are. Look, these are not people who could in any way take Putin down. They couldn't two years ago. They certainly can't now. What they can do in some cases is, I mean, some of them actually have a relationship with Putin. And it may be that in some small way they, they could possibly influence him. I'm not convinced that many of them are able or, or willing to try and do that. I think they're frankly in the position of so many within the elite is they would like to see change. And whether change means toppling Putin or not, but they would like to see change. They do not dare do anything about it, though, because this is an environment that Putin has made it very clear that essentially... We're now in a situation where there is an unvariegated binary. You are either a patriot or a traitor. There is nothing in between. No one wants to be the first person to start the conversations about trying to actually do anything. So although it may well be that if for some other reason Putin comes under pressure, if someone else moves against him, if he suddenly becomes terribly, terribly ill, or if there's some other systemic crisis they might be emboldened to try and sort of join a coalition against Putin. But up until that point, no one's going to be the first person to move against him. And everyone's lives are comfortable enough that they're not going to take silly risks. So in many ways, I think what's happened is they have just simply shifted from being movers and shakers in Russia to essentially just being part of Putin's money management team who will run whichever corporation or industry they're in charge of, and they'll make a lot of money out of it, but they are entirely beholden to the state. And if the state says, well, as we've seen with, for example, Gazprom, setting up mercenary organisations, I mean, that's not because it's, you know, Gazprom is envisaging a future of warlordism or something like that, but I imagine it's because either they were told it's time to spend some of your money getting some more fighting men for the front. Or that Alexei Miller, the head of Gazprom, decided that he wanted to demonstrate his loyalty to the Kremlin and thought this was the way to do it. Everyone is now just simply at the moment trying to, at the very least, cosplay extreme patriotism and loyalty 
even if in their opulent kitchens, they are, you know, decrying Putin and everything he's doing. All right. Thanks very much, Mark. Um, uh, we do now have a couple more questions. I'll, I'll try, I think uh, we may have time for two and that's all. But um, the first is from uh, James Evans, uh, who asks, does the shoot down of Kinjal hypersonic missiles by uh, Ukrainian Patriot missiles change the tactical situation for Ukraine or for Russia and Putin? I mean, I think it's it's an interesting demonstration of the later model Patriots' capabilities, but I don't think it dramatically changes anything because Russia always had a very limited supply of the Kinjals. Um, their 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 power was much more as a sort of oh we 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 have this magical weapon that no no one can shoot down or whatever. Um, so you know it's it, it's not as though the, the the Kinjal arsenal was one that could ever really be deployed as a sort of a game changer. Yes, it's an embarrassment for Moscow and a Philip for, well, for whatever it is, Raytheon or whoever it is who make the Patriot. Um, but it's also the fact that, frankly, one shouldn't presume that all Kinjals are now always going to be shot down. It's just part of the shifting balance of technological superiority away from Russia and towards a Western-armed Ukraine. And thank you for that, Mark. Um, now the other question um, that came in is, and I'll, uh, any word, and you did, you did mention this, um, uh, any word on today's incursions into Russia? So I guess I'll, that's the question I guess I would add, um, you know, add my own question about that, which is, um, the West does, seems not to want Ukraine to be doing this, but it happens anyway, assuming that this is what has happened. Um, you know, what, what, what could you say about that, Mark? Yeah, I'm not, this is very much a sort of a, a breaking story. And frankly, we, we don't have any kind of truly objective information about what, what's been happening yet. I mean, there does seem to have been an attack, clearly. How big, how long it'll last, etc., remains to be seen. I mean, beyond that, I think what's interesting is, is first of all, as I said, I mean, for me, this suggests that the counteroffensive is nearing because it does feel like a kind of shaping attack to try and keep, get the Russians guessing jumpy and dispersing their forces. But also, it's interesting that it comes specifically from the, you know, Russian pro-Kiev forces, because this provides that kind of tissue-thin deniability. Look, let's be perfectly honest. These forces do not operate in any way independently. They are integrated within the Ukrainian armed forces. They could not have launched this attack without Ukraine's uh, for, you know, government and, and, and a chain of command approving it, if not indeed in, instructing it. And frankly, they probably received at the very least fire support from the Ukrainian military. Nonetheless, it allows Kyiv to say, no, 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 these are not Ukrainian forces that are going into Russia. These are Russian patriots eager to push back against the evil, oppressive Putin regime. On the one hand, I think that a lot of Western governments, not all, are going to be concerned 
at this continuing escalation of Ukraine's campaign within Russia. But on the other hand, I think, especially in the current environment, they will be happy to play along and not regard this as a Ukrainian cross-border attack, but a, a Russian patriot one. Um, but as I say, it's, it, it, it's part of a, a rising curve. And who knows what might happen politically if actually we start to see more evidence of Ukrainian forces going across the, the border. After all, again, it's worth noting that although it's not confirmed, I mean, there, there, is the, there was the claim that Washington, the Washington Post ran based on these leaked documents that Zelensky himself, the man who after all had said, no, 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 we, we will not be operating within Russia. But Zelensky himself was talking about occupying border, you know, Russian border villages to put pressure on Moscow. So, I mean, I think you know, this, this is something that could in the future become a, a particular concern for the West, but that at the moment they'll, they'll turn a blind eye. Okay, thanks uh, again, Mark. And I'm, I'm actually, if, if you don't mind, I will finish up with one, one last no question. Um, thank you. Um, it's from, goes back to Prigozhin, it's from George Sal uh, Salmanu. Uh, the question is, what do you think of Prigozhin's recent, recent posturing um, about Wagner's withdrawal from Bakhmut? Is this another ruse? Will he actually pull his forces this time? Does he even have the authority or power to do so? And I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my view was this was always about posturing. This is a fact, this is kind of a man who's desperate trying to get through to the boss and making whatever threats he feels he needs to, to be listened to. To be honest, if while Bakhmut is still in contention, Wagner pulls out, then I think that would again be, be regarded as tantamount to treason. But also it's worth noting that, that Wagner is not truly autonomous in the sense of it doesn't have its own uh, transport wing. It doesn't any more than it has logistic. You know, it relies on the Ministry of Defence, not just for ammunition and for fire support, but also for mobility. Um, so that if Wagner was going to pull out, sure, they could actually disengage from, from the line of fighting. But any kind of lengthy moves, unless they're all going to just start hitchhiking, would require the cooperation of the Ministry of Defence. So I, I always thought this was more of a threat than anything else. Now, maybe if, if Bakhmut has fallen, or at least if the Russians are going to claim that Bakhmut has fallen, that might be the basis for a repositioning of Wagner. But that's it. It will be a repositioning to a new location as kind of provided for and arranged by the Ministry of Defence. It's not actually that in practice, Prigozhin can just send this piece moving wherever he wants on the board. All right. I mean, I think that's really helpful uh, to, to me, certainly, and, and to listeners, um, kind of to get the idea of how much independence does, does it have. I hadn't really thought of that. How much independence does Wagner have, I guess, operationally or, or on, the, uh, on the ground? Um, so thanks uh, for that, Mark. And, and um you know, for all your very comprehensive answers. Uh, uh, so, yeah, thanks, thanks uh, very much for joining me. Always Mark. a pleasure. All right. Uh, once again, I've been speaking to Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars, 
from Chechnya to Ukraine. And he mentioned both of those uh, wars in this discussion. Uh, and my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week in R- Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back next week for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your questions.